Hello there, my name is Phil Williams and I would like to welcome you to Audio Angling, the podcast site of fishingfilmsandfacts.co.uk. This contribution comes from ex-England international boat angler Steve Quinn, who I've fished with on a number of occasions over the years. My earliest recollection probably goes back to the 1980s and the leisure angling Rossler Boat Festivals organised by Dave Horton. We were both fishing from trail boats back then, and while I still am, the competitive streak in you pushed your career in a totally different direction as you pursued and eventually answered the international call, representing England on numerous occasions, which is the reason why we're having this chat today. Now I know from talking to a number of other ex-internationals, and not all boat anglers, nor even sea anglers, that the public face of what we get to see in the press as the teams stand together showing off their medals is the tip of a very large iceberg, with a great deal of work being required to get into the frame of that photograph at all. And as we go along, the investment compared to the payout, and whether or not you thought it was all worth it in your eyes, is something I would very much like to pursue. But for now, how and why you got yourself into the squad is crucial in setting the scene regarding the other strands to your story. So what I'd like to do first off is have you talk about your earliest angling recollections before the international call was even considered. How did you finally settle on sea fishing, and more specifically fishing from boats? Well basically Phil, I started off as a course angler roughly about, that was the age of seven, through the age of twelve. There used to be a local lads that I used to see coming home every Saturday, Sunday, with big bags of mackerel and, and they had skate. And this uh, this was something I thought, well, I'd like, like a little bit of that. So I started, firstly, a bit of beach fishing. And then uh, I started on the charter boats. I started to really enjoy it, fish with the adults. And I started fishing the odd match as a junior. I then progressed a little bit more as I basically got a bit better. And I started fishing the senior matches, started doing really, really well at them. Due to the availability of charter boats, I decided to get a small boat with a friend so we could go out when the weather was good and we had the time. So that was that was it really, that was the, the start of me small boat fishing, which progressed then to me joining the World Boat Angling Club, which was really the, uh, the start of my angling career. I really got the bite then on the match fishing side, even though it was only... Uh, at club level and I just really wanted to progress. What sort of competitive structure then did they have at the World Small Boat Club? World Club we used to have a summer and winter league. We had a lot of trailaways and obviously we held the, the cod match in the river during the winter. The summer league we all used to launch at New Brighton and out towards the bar area. Mostly species fishing which I really enjoy and obviously the winter it was more based in the river fishing for white and coddling and maybe the odd dogfish, dabs and anything else to come along. And now, with hindsight, having a fish competition from both charter and trail boats, which do you think taught you the most and best prepared you for your try for the England team? Both really. Obviously, on the charter boats, you've got more anglers, so if you, you know, if one man's catching, I used to tend to put my rod down and go and have a little look and see what he was doing different to myself. The small boat angling, Obviously, I, I fished with some really good anglers like Sir McDuff, and we used to bounce ideas off each other. We were both very hungry and keen at the time to improve and go further afield. So, uh, as we, we progressed, we started trailing the boats away and fishing more matches. I think you do learn a lot more in a small boat angling, uh, especially on the species side, looking for your terrain and different areas, looking for tide, where the species should be, 
So I think the small boat angling taught me a lot. In the case of small boats, you've nobody but yourself to rely on to find the fish, which is bound to make you think a lot more about what you're doing. That's right, Phil. Also, obviously, you're reading the charts, wondering why other little boats are nipped into little bays and going into the shallows for your mini-species. It just gives you a, a bit more... Obviously, it's a lot easier to up anchor and move as well with a small boat, so you can cover a lot more ground a lot quicker. I think the small boat angling really pushed me forward. So was everything you did competition-orientated, or was there also some pleasure fishing in there as well? Yeah, there was a lot of pleasure fishing, Phil, but with being keen at the time, we, we always looked towards the, the match fishing side. We had some fantastic days on the pleasure angler, on the bass, on the tope fishing, and obviously drifting for place, yeah, we had some fantastic days. I suppose when you're into match fishing, it pays to have that single-minded approach. But have you always been so competitive? Yeah, Phil, from a very early age. I think from my first fish was a tench at the age of six in Birkenhead Park. And I always wanted bigger fish, more fish. And I was always always keen. I was never scared to ask questions and basically stop and watch what other people were doing. And as we all know, that helped take you through to the England Boat Fishing Squad, which is something a lot of other people would like to have a crack at, I'm sure. What then must people do to bring themselves into international contention? And having got to that stage... How is the final squad ultimately chosen? Well, Phil, you've got basically got to put yourself about in all the matches you can. Obviously, it's very awkward being from the north because a lot of matches are down south and they do tend to uh, stick to southern-based anglers because obviously they can fish the, fish the matches and the areas a lot more than northern anglers can. What you've basically got to do is get your results and just plug away, fish as many openers as you can. Even the club level, keep a note of all your matches and obviously then put your application form in. So it's not done on a qualification by point system then? Not really, Phil. It's, uh, they normally watch you for a couple of years. You put your application form in, you'd be very, very lucky to be picked first time. Obviously, anyone can have a really good year. And I think what they tend to do is watch your results for two or three years and then give you a, a shot of a, an open weekend then where you'll pick the top 16 anglers in the country and basically you tend to have a bit of a fish-off over the weekend. Normally it's Weymouth or Plymouth, and then obviously they'll pick a team, a squad of 10, out of the 16, and of that, six will then be picked for the team. And does that include a reserve? And it'll be five in a reserve, yeah. And are you then a member of the squad for that year, or are the squads perhaps selected on a competition-by-competition basis? No, that's the same every year, Phil. Once you've been picked for that year, obviously you've got to plug away, carry on fishing your matches, and again, you've got to reapply the following year. Now, when I spoke on this subject to ex-Welsh team member Gethin Owen, he was of the opinion that anyone with international ambition should seize the opportunity to go as a reserve, also put themselves forward as a steward to see how the setup works, what the competition pressure is going to be like, and, of course, to pick up some useful tips from the world's top anglers. Would you also subscribe to that view? Yeah, I'd definitely recommend. I've done it many a time myself as reserve, and you'd be surprised really what you do pick up. Obviously, while you're on the boat, you're watching eight, ten, obviously quality anglers, because they wouldn't be there if they uh, were anybody, but you can pick up so much uh, just by standing behind an angler who's doing well on the day. When we were chatting earlier, you mentioned Slovenia as being a good example of just that. Yeah, in Slovenia, I was placed at the back of a boat with a, with a local Slovenian, and he had 11 fish before I'd even seen a bite. We were fishing in 160 foot of water, 
for small, very, very small bream and jurels, which are a rainbow wrasse. But this disease, 11 fish, I hadn't even seen a bite, and I thought, that I've got to be doing something wrong. So I put my rod down and basically just stood to one side and watched. And I didn't even see his quiver tip move, and he was into another fish. So I just thought, this something's not right. So I carried on watching, and then sussed out that he actually wasn't watching the tip. He was watching the bow in a line where it entered the water. So before it registered on this quiver tip, he'd already struck him into a fish. We ended up, I obviously adapted the same method, and he only ended up eight fish behind him at the end of the day. And between one and two, we'd done very well. On his own patch, you would expect him to do well. But had you gone through similar learning processes with established members of the England team, and for that matter, other home international squads? Yeah, that's correct. The Southern lads, given the due, are very, very good at pollock fishing. For some reason, even drawing a red gill, fishing a red gill, and I always wondered why they were so competitive and why they were so good at the method. And basically, a lot of it is the turn of speed that you bring the gill in at. You know, if the tide's running a bit stronger or a bit slacker, you'll speed up. And it was watching watching the likes of Ray Barron and Bobby King, who were very good pollock anglers, that uh, I picked up the method myself. When fishing for a squad place, you'd expect southern anglers to do well on their own patch. But is that necessarily a good barometer, particularly if an international is being held outside the UK, but the fishing may be equally alien to all of you? It's a good question, Phil, but it seems to have been, over the years, anglers from the north, it's been very hard to have been picked. There seems to be, how can I put it, a clique of anglers down south that seems to be virtually in the top ten to be picked all the time. I don't think the, the northern anglers are really given a fair crack of the whip because when they have been picked, they've done it exceedingly well, really. So is getting good qualifying results only part of the story? It sounds like your face also has to fit. In other words, jobs for the boys. It's a bit of both, I think, Phil. Obviously, the anglers that are getting picked are good anglers, but sometimes there is better anglers out there that have applied and haven't been picked. So sometimes I think, yeah, sometimes it may be jobs for the boys. Daft question, but how does that make you feel? It's, it's a bit annoying, Phil, when you've... Yeah, just the cost element alone when you've you know you travelled down on a Friday to fish a qualifier on a Saturday and Sunday, stayed over the Monday, come back done really well and then you don't get a shout. Yeah, it is a bit annoying but uh, that seems to be the way it's been over a few years. And always the cost involved is entirely down to you. Yeah, the finances fell for a Weymouth match where we travelled down and fish a qualifier. We, we sat down and worked it out the, the other year. And just one weekend would probably cost us between the boats, your accommodation, your travel, roughly six to seven hundred pounds, and that's before your two days lost work. Having spoken to a number of international anglers from the various home teams, it's obvious that qualification can differ markedly from nation to nation, and probably even more so when you factor in Europe and the rest of the world. Welsh qualifiers, for example, were, and possibly still are, fished two hours anchored over the sand, two hours anchored over the rough then two hours on the drift to get the most consistent measure of versatility. How is the final England assessment made? Basically the, the same thing. The match will be based over four to six hours. We move every every hour and a half, so each angler is not fishing the back of the boat or up towards the wheelhouse. They tend to do the same. They tend to have uh, two hours at anchor, two hours on the drift, an hour on the rough ground and an hour on the sand. So yeah, it is roughly the same as uh, as the Welsh. Obviously, your boat captain and you have a steward on the boat that takes notes of you know after the whistle goes, how quick you down, 
how ready you are, your baits prepared, your spare rigs ready, everything at hand. Basically, you watch from the time you go out. And is it still jobs for the boys, even at the final selection stage on the boat, or does ability and performance on the day then start to kick in? Uh, it's an awkward question. Over the years, I've seen really good anglers, even on the qualifier matches, really good anglers have a bit of a poor day, and this this has gone against them on the application, where for the full year, they've really pulled out the stops. So... Myself, I think it's a bit unfair to judge one angler on one day. We can all have a bad day, but I still think it's, it is quite sort of orientated. So you make it into the final squad and you've arrived at the chosen international venue for the match itself. Do the cost implications still lie with you, or is there then some degree of team support? We had a, a small bit of help with the, from the Sport Council, which was about 25% of the costs. This was the cost of your travelling, basically, some cost of your accommodation. But for the likes of going over to Slovenia, Croatia, Marseille, Germany, we'd probably go over five days before to practice. And then obviously you've got the accommodation. That's 10 to 14 days would probably cost me in the region of £2,000, even with the help from the Sports Council. What about sponsorship in terms of tackle and bait to ensure everyone is best equipped for the challenge at hand? Obviously, a lot of that depends on the manager. We were very fortunate to have some good managers throughout, the likes of Colin Bond. A lot of that was down to the manager before you got to the venue. If he knew exactly what uh, rigs, what rods, reels, whether it was going to be a braid venue or a nylon venue. One thing with that, when we went to Croatia, we went on the gun, really. The lads were fishing with 15-foot quiver tip rods, which we didn't take over. These were something we really needed. And obviously, you can buy them there, but you're looking at £300. You know, it's a big lump to pay out before you, you even start. Paul Cartwright was probably the best manager we could have got. He'd done a lot of homework. He used to travel a lot to Italy through his business. And he used to buy a lot of tackle over there to, to help us out. He'd do a lot of homework, and yeah, he was really good. So what happens then in terms of bed? Is that down to you, the team, or is the same supplied to everyone on the day? Bait supplied on the day, right down to the last quarter ounce, make sure everyone's got exactly the same bait, same quality of bait. And what happens is your bait is, if there's 12 countries, you, you've got 12 bags of bait and you go and throw your own bag. So, you know, you, there can't be any rumours of, oh, they're better bait than us, it's, it's down to yourself. The bait was normally pretty good, everyone's bait was the same. That side of it, the bait quality was really, really good. A limited amount of bait will also force you to use it more carefully because presumably when it's gone, that's it. That's right, but especially on baits in the Mediterranean when you're fishing small mussel baits, what I tend to do is when I'd fish the bait, I'd unhook a fish, I'd take the bait off and put in a little tray, maybe with a little bit of oil. You have to be very careful because some of you didn't like using preservatives or additives or whatever. And that has pulled me out of the mire quite a few times. You, obviously, you've just got to sometimes then fish, you, you know, you, you'll have 10, 12 baits ripped off before you've even known it, so you've got to be very, very careful with your baits. That's always helped me out to just keep me bait back, even if it's, you know, it, it is a bit worse for wear, and at least you've got something going down on the hook at the end of the day. And is the same bait supply also there for the warm-up days to ensure you practice under match conditions? Yeah, that's right, Phil. You, you pay for your, exactly the same bait, uh, the same bait that you'd use on the, the match days you get on your practice days. What, if anything, happens in terms of team orders? Is there a pre-match master plan? 
or are you pretty much left to get on with the fishing as you find it on the day? Well, basically, after after the, uh, the initial practice days, after two or three days, you should have come to some method. Obviously, what we did find in many a venue was the practice days, you'd go out fish 30, 40 foot of water, and then on the match days, they'd move you to another zone where you'd be in 160 foot of water. So sometimes, obviously, the method that you'd use close in shore didn't work offshore. The manager probably knew that you could cope with that change and do your own thing. But there, yeah, there was a team strategy, and obviously, if we went to the, the same venue we'd been practicing on, we'd, we'd stick at that. If it didn't work, then it was down to the, the individual angler to change. Another twist to that is the fact that, in effect, there are two competitions going on at the same time, the team and the individual. At what point, then, can you decide to fish for yourself, or must you always be fishing for the team, with individual honours coming along as an incidental bonus? I've always been a team angler. Obviously, you just do your best on the day, and if it comes out, you're going to be one of the top anglers. Well, I fished the same whether I was fishing for myself or for the team. Over the years, I have seen, even with my own team members, they've found a tactic and it hasn't been passed through the team and you know it's paid off dividends for them so it, it all depends on the individual angler you have team anglers and you have people sometimes a little bit selfish and go for it for themselves I've seen it on many occasions but if you have a team strategy and someone for whatever reason decides to stray from it and it doesn't pay off are there then repercussions after the event well basically yeah we'll sit down after after the competition we sit down with the manager and uh, obviously he'll have a bit of a talk with us uh, why did you change, why didn't you stick to the method but well, that was about it Phil, there was never any, uh, you know, anyone dropped not sticking to the rules really And what do you as an individual come away with from fishing both under pressure and as part of a team in terms of being a better angler as a result? Well my personal game was knowledge you're fishing with the best of the best and I've learned so much from the Spanish the, the Italians are a, a league of their own and just to fish amongst them, you, you pick up so much knowledge, information, just down to, to the, the speed fishing and basically what they're doing, you know, fishing different coloured leads and when to switch and braid tomorrow, you just pick up so much knowledge. Before we move more into tackle choices and tactics, now is probably an appropriate time for you to give us a quick run through of your achievements with the squad. I think my biggest letdown, not so much for myself, was from the actual England team itself as my points and scores and career over the years in Ireland have been really good. I've had some very, very good results. The World Championships in Ireland four or five years ago, I was picked as reserve, which was a little bit down on because I'd only just won a big competition over there the fortnight before. But anyway, we went, we went out, I went out as a, as a reserve. We'd sussed out, I was very good at Gernard fishing, basically because Liverpool Bay is, it's very, it was very similar fishing. So we came up with a tactic, a method. I tied the rigs for all the team. Uh, we had a quite a big drive over morning from where we were staying to where we were fishing. So it was a drive for me to drop the team off a morning back. I was promised that the reserve position was only temporary and it would go on the angler's ability during the day if anyone wasn't performing. Basically, the reserve would move in. But it didn't happen, Phil. Some of the lads didn't stick to the method. I'd disastrous results the first two days and the Italians actually walked the competition and I didn't even get a didn't even get a shout and I think that was a sour note on the England team for me but over the years I've been European champion twice I've been in the winning team I've been in five home international teams I've had four gold medals in the internationals 
two silvers, three bronzes. Been European Cod champion twice. So I've had some really good results over the years. I th think the initial one was the, my first competition I got picked for was in Swansea. Uh, it was a home international. I was the first Northern Angler to be picked for a long time. I think the first was Alan Sharp from Liverpool. So I really wanted to go out and prove my point. We were out with quality anglers like Sir Steve Souter, Gordon Lyle. It was more dogfish ground really. And I won the boat with 135 fish. Had a stormer of a day. 70 dogfish, 62 white and 3 congrail. I think the next to me was Stephen Souter who scored 42%. I've got a lot of respect for Steve, so that was one of my, my one of my highs of my uh, international career, especially it being my first international as well. But when you're seen in the press holding up the medals, though they are the pinnacle, as I said earlier, these are just the tip of the iceberg, because out of sight is a lot of preparation, a lot of practice, and by the sound of things, a lot of cost as well, which people do tend to overlook. How difficult is it then to maintain that level of input? I think, Phil, originally getting into the team was hard enough and I think that is when it really all started because obviously you want to carry on being picked for the team. I was permanently tying rigs on the phone, bringing people for my next competition, making sure my bait was perfect, having aerating tanks in the garage, digging my own ragworm. There's so much work in the background and obviously you've got to have to tackle for the job and that tackle doesn't come cheap. So the, the homework behind it is a big part of your results at the end. I would say 70%. We can all go out and catch fish when there's fish under us, but if you, know, if you do your homework right, it makes it so much easier for you. Give us some idea of timescales here. How long was it, say, from taking up sea fishing to thinking about trying for the England team? Basically, when I was, I was around about 18 and 19, I stood out in a few matches and I just really wanted to go forward. I applied when I was 29 for the England team. I was asked to apply, and the first two years I, I didn't get picked. I was 32 when I eventually got picked for the same. So it was a good 10 years, really. That was going to be my next question, actually. Was you approached to apply for the team? I was fishing a competition in Scotland, and I was asked to do a bit of a talk of a night time on basically what makes anglers a better angler than somebody else. And I just gave a bit of a talk and then I was approached by Colin Bond and Colin said, would you be interested in fishing for England? Said, well, of course, yeah, I'd love to. He said, well, if I was you, he said, I'd put a, an application form in. He said, I must be fair to say you mightn't get picked for the first year, but just plug away. Just keep your results going in and we'll see what happens. And obviously, two years later, there it was. So what does make one angler better than another? I think one, Phil, you've got to want it, really. You've got to want to be better. I was always one that if an angler was catching and I wasn't, I'd always go and find out basically what I was doing wrong. I think it's that hunger. You've got to have the hunger for it. And also, you've got to have the ability. I think if you do your homework and, and watch good anglers who were fishing well at the time, I think that goes, uh, goes in your favour a lot. And when it finally does come along, how does it feel that first time out? Oh, it's amazing. Absolutely amazing. I'll never forget, it was 10 o'clock on a Friday morning. The letter came through the door, and it was, about an, it was an hour before I opened the letter, because obviously I'd been turned back twice, and I thought, oh, please, not this not this time. I opened the letter, and, and there it was, yeah. It was absolutely amazing feeling. You feel that all the work you, you put in over the years, you know, it's paid off for you. Now, getting to that point is one thing, 
Staying there, presumably, is another matter. How hard can it be maintaining that level of form and commitment to stay there year on year? Well, that's where the problem comes, as I said earlier. It's, it's getting picked is one thing, but then trying to maintain that is, is unbelievable. Because then you've got no option. You've got to go out, you've got to fish the Opens. You've got to go down south and compete against them lads. And not just compete, you've got to beat them or, or be up in the top five, six anglers all the time. That puts a lot of mental pressure on you and obviously financial pressure. That's a bit of a killer really, but if you want it, I'm afraid that's that's what you've got to do. And uh, that's what makes it hard really. The financial side is very, very hard. Speaking to other internationals from the shore, boat and even course fishing squads, there eventually comes a point, sometimes accelerated by politics and bad feeling, where it all starts to wear a bit thin. Though always an honour, it isn't so much of a pleasure anymore. There are also going to be personal pressures too. Then disillusionment and resentment sets in. Does any of this ring true with you? Quite a lot, Phil, yeah. Obviously, I was in the England team for 15 years and the first four or five years, you're really on a high. Sometimes then it starts getting a bit mundane, things start going stale. I'm not saying you lose interest, but it's it's not the same as it was. It's, it's a funny question, really, because I think for the last three years with the internationals, I didn't really enjoy it, but obviously not, nobody wants to bow out, really, so you plug away. But the, the early years were far, far better. And I do find that when you get to that level as well, there's quite a lot of backstabbing and animosity amongst anglers. Not so much the international anglers, but other anglers get a bit jealous, maybe, you know. This isn't aimed at you specifically, but in some cases, the pressure, time input and cost can also affect people's personal lives as well. Well, it definitely uh, affected my personal life. For the first seven years, I probably didn't see my son grow up at all. I got divorced as well, which certainly didn't help. Because basically I was never at home. If I wasn't at work, I was fishing. If I wasn't fishing, I was digging bait. If I wasn't digging bait, I'd be down watching somebody fishing a beach match or in the local tackle shop talking away for hours. So, yeah, it certainly cost me a lot in the early stages. Obviously, I didn't, I didn't see me something grow up at all, really. So, uh, it does put a lot of pressure on your family life, definitely. So, with hindsight, would you still go down the same route again, knowing what you know today? Yeah, I probably would feel you have to be truthful with you, yeah. I'd probably do things a little bit differently in the way as I certainly wouldn't put myself in the financial pressure that I did. And to be truthful, things were great, but as you get a bit older, I think you tend to think, well, maybe if I'd have done this and I'd have done that. I certainly wouldn't put myself under the financial pressure by going and fishing every match that I could just to, just to score points, really, and, and keep your name in the frame. Am I right in thinking, then, that all those who get onto this particular treadmill will come out a bit better all-round anglers than when they went in? I wouldn't say they'd be better anglers. I think they'll pick up a lot more knowledge. It's whether they want to put that knowledge to trial, really. I know a lot of anglers, good anglers, that have reached international level and packed the sport in completely. Basically, juice the pressure to put you under. So what, specifically, do you think your England squad has taught you? It's certainly taught me to do my homework on venues... I think that's a major part. Obviously, I've enjoyed it. You know, you can't do any more than fish for your country. You can't do any better than fish for your country. It's taught me a lot, and I've met a lot of lovely people all over the world. But I think now I'm actually out of the frame. I can sit back and relax now. It, it does take its toll. And from what you tell me, 
you're going to get to handle a news rods and rigs which is a pleasure angle that you probably never get to see. Has there been anything in that respect which you brought over into your pleasure fishing which you think has made a profound difference? Well basically it's taught me one to be more prepared. I think sea angling has changed dramatically especially with internationals fishing abroad. I tend to find that a lot of English anglers fish very heavy. They are very overgunned with the tackle, hook sizes, obviously fishing braids change things dramatically. Basically be more prepared and fish for bites instead of fish basically scale down definitely fish smaller and obviously it helps you with your speed fishing I'd like us to move on now more to tackle and tactics let's start with rod choice sticking with home waters how long or how light can you go and what can these rods bring which more traditional blanks miss out on the problem is Phil and I've seen a lot myself is once you fish the 15 foot 14, 13 foot quiver tip rods abroad a lot of English anglers try and fish the same tactics and fish the same tackle in, in this country and it doesn't help you I think it basically it puts uh, puts you behind a bit because I've seen lads trying to swing dog fishing on 15 foot rods and snapping the tips and I think you've got to adapt your tackle to whatever water and whatever type of fish you're, you're going to be catching really. There is a time and a place for the 15 foot quiver tip rods if you want to get away from the boat Obviously, if you're fishing, you're speed fishing for smaller fish, I think these come into their own. But the general fishing, especially in the north, where you're not looking for your, your bream as you are down south, I think your standard English tackle is uh, quite ample. Strength of tide also has to be a factor in how far a rod can be scaled back. Well, of course, Phil, yeah, because obviously the, uh, the quiver tip rods, you know, you're only really up to six ounces and... There's not a lot of venues we fish now that uh, will take six ounces, like the River Mersey, obviously, downside, and you look at a pound plus a lead, so the 15-foot rod's certainly out there. I say that there's a rod for every venue, and you've got to really think about that when you're going to fish a match or whether you're going to fish pleasure fish. What about choice of reels? The fundamental question, I suppose, has to be fixed spool or multiplier. Uh, well, obviously, Phil, I fish both with the quiver tip rods, Yes, I do fish a fixed spool, but that is about all. I know I know a lot of lads now are fishing for cod in, in the river with fixed spools, but I wouldn't myself personally use one. I'd stick to the multiplayer. But yeah, it's like everything else. There's a time and a place. Fixed spools, I think they're uh, you know they're good for fishing for smaller species when you're speed fishing. But uh, I tend to stick to a, uh, a multiplayer when I'm uh, fishing for bigger and heavier fish. And what is it that gets loaded onto the spool? Mono or braid? It's very, very rare I use monofilament now. I don't think I've used mono now for probably seven or eight years. I tend to fish braid all the time and I never, ever go over £30. The quality of the braid now, I don't think there's any, any need to, to step up. I even go down as light as £8 braid. But I think braid's the way forward myself. There's a well, a lot of people are still stuck on mono. Uh, I know Jim Presley wouldn't think of putting braid on. I suppose it's what you're happy with as well, you know. But I, I, I think braid is uh, the bee's knees, I think, though. I use mono by choice, but I wouldn't describe myself as stuck. I do it based on many bad braid experiences, particularly when uptiding, when suddenly it cracks off during casting, or when a good fish pokes its head through the surface. In both cases, due to unseen wear from grass or weed chafing it at the swivel knot. I do still use braid on occasions where it is an absolute must, but if I can manage without it, I will. 
I suppose you're right, Phil, but I think sometimes, it's, especially at match level, when you're looking for bite detection, obviously there's nothing better than braid. But it's a, it's a personal choice. Uh, as you say, you've gone back on mono. It does have its advantages. I have found sometimes, especially on the, when you're drift fishing, you can get a, a much slower drift if you fish mono because of the giving the mono. That's the only time, really, if I'm fishing for place on the drift, uh, I would definitely switch back to mono then. So what about hooks? And I'm not thinking here of sizes, as bait and fish size will determine that. I'm thinking more of specific patterns, barbs and wire gauges. What are your thoughts and preferences in that regard? I always fish a quality hook. I love Camazan. I've fished Camazan hooks for years. I do squeeze a barb down on a dogfish in the matches because the, the unhooking makes it so much quicker. It's like everything else. It's your, it's your own personal choice. I use Camazans and Uptide Vikings, another quality hook. Again, I like them. Good strength hook. I don't like it. Uh, some of the hooks now I think are a bit overgunned, a bit heavy. I always like to fish a medium wire and... I seem to be happy with them couple of make a hook. What do you think about attractors, either on the trace or butted up to the hook? Do they work, or are people, for the most part, kidding themselves? I tend to fish very small luminous beads, either luminous or pink. I know when we fish the, the matches in Ireland, yellow for any dogfish is definitely a certainty. They tend to, uh, to really go for the yellow bead, or even a small yellow blade if you're on the, on the drift. Again, Looking at Scottish anglers who are exceptional on the drift fishing, I've watched them switching over blades and I always thought, why is this? And the, the stronger the tide, the bigger the blade, because you need that push of water to turn the blade properly. And they really are keen on attractors. Yet in the, in the World Championships, you're not allowed to use any attractors at all, not whatsoever. So it's, I suppose it's down to the venue, clarity of water, and it's your own preference. If you feel happy with using the uh, attractors, well, yeah, go ahead. I do use them. I don't use them in the River Mersey because of the clarity of the water, basically. nothing. You know, you couldn't see anything down there. But, uh, yeah, I do fish attractors, and definitely for dogfish. And taking attraction to its logical conclusion, what about spray-on or paint-on bait additives? In your opinion, do these have any value? Phil, I've never had faith in any of them, and you know, if somebody brings a can of WD-40 next to me, it makes me cringe. But, again, some of the matches in, in Ireland, fishing for your dogs and your rays and your huss, you fish a bait additive there with a the swim feeder. And yeah, it does improve, it does tend to improve your catches, but that's the only time I've ever seen it. I know a, a well-known Welsh angler, Jimmy Jones, who was king of the dogfish, he swore by bait additives. So, again, it's your own personal preference. I don't use them myself, I don't like them. What are your thoughts on leads? As with hooks, circumstances will dictate the size. But what are your thoughts on particular shapes, wiring patterns, or even colours, which I've seen used to supposedly attract fish? Again, I, I tend to be an angler who just likes to touch bottom. I don't like to feel my lead bang into the ground. And that's a, I always like a bit of movement, so I do tend to fish a lot of ball leads. I like ball leads because, one, it gives you a bit of cover of ground. If you've got a bit of tide, it moves your lead around. Ball leads, obviously I see a lot of people uptied and different grip leads. Again, it's personal preference. I do find that uh, coloured leads, yeah. I know in the med, they absolutely swear by coloured leads for whatever reason, but they seem keen with that. Yeah, I do fish coloured leads now and again. Again, on the drift, sometimes it pays off on the drift. I think it gives you a bit of flash of colour. If I'm going to fish 
heavy and I'm fishing heavy to me it's like 12 ounces I would tend to go towards a, a bowpedal lead it's just personal preference that but I, I do like that lead ball leads arsley bombs small arsleys and your bowpedals and obviously sometimes on the drift I'll use the old watch lead still because it definitely does kick up and pop off the sand a lot of people don't like them I still like them on, on accessory and, and place fishing we can take it as read that bait size is a match to target species, using suitably sized hooks to present them properly. But what about bait preferences? If you had a free choice of everything available every trip, how would you rate baits in terms of importance, and how are they best used to target specific species of fish? The three baits that I'd always be armed with would be, obviously, mackerel, which probably accounted for, for more fish caught than any other bait, ragworm, and peeler crab, by far, obviously... You know, depends on the species, but yeah, them three baits would be my main bait. And obviously during the winter, you're looking for your lug and black lug baits. But if I was given three baits to choose from, it would be rag, mackerel and peeler crab. What about shellfish baits? Do you ever use those? Yeah, now and again, Phil. I've fished flounder matches and uh, I've used shellfish and they've been quite good. And obviously razor fish does fish very, very well for the cod sometimes. Uh, if you tip off your black lug baits with razor, it can be very good. Obviously, as well, your sand ale for your dogs is, a, is another one. Yeah, I wouldn't be without sand ale if it was dog fishing. Shore matchmen, it seems, have a slightly different priority list, with arguably their main must-have bait being white ragworm. Have you ever tried using those in the boat? Do you know, Phil, I've used it many a time off the beach and I've had good success with it. But off the boat, for, for whatever reason, whether you're in deeper water... I've never really scored very highly with it. I know, again, the Scottish anglers use it quite a lot for the cod fishing on the drift, but I've never really scored with the fill. But again, again, it fishes very well off the beach. And how do you feel about frozen baits, which a lot of pleasure anglers, myself included, regularly use? Well, I think the quality of frozen bait now, Phil, has, has improved dramatically. Your ammo baits, your predator baits, I think have come on leaps and bounds. I wouldn't now not go out fishing if I didn't have fresh baits I'd, I'd just go and get a couple of packets of uh, frozen because the quality here seems to have been very very good Does that go for black lugworm as well? Black lug as well yeah it's been exceptional yeah Living inland I often don't have any other choice that said I've had some tremendous cod on them I also find they pick up less unwanted small fish attention probably on account of the lack of body juices anyway moving on can we now look at terminal rigs? Most rigs are variations on just a handful of basic themes. If you had to limit yourself to, say, just three different rigs for the rest of your fishing days, which three would you go for and why? Um, my first one would certainly be three below the lead. That'd be a flowing boom and three small baits below the lead. Trace length, probably a metre long. The other one would be two down, two below the lead and one above the lead, six to nine inches above the lead. And then a problem in the other would be a basic uptide rig. A simple flowing trace. Flowing trace, yeah. I tend to do that now too. I've seen many anglers uptide and with six foot traces. I tend to fish my traces 18 to 20 inches long. One, you get a much better bite once the cod or whatever's picked up your bait. So I tend to keep them short. So far, you've given us a lot of good information to narrow down the potential for mistakes. But as always, knowledge comes at a price, and you must have made some bad choices along the way too. Give us a few examples then of not getting it quite right, and what you learned from the experience as a result. 
well, there's been a few, but one that sticks out in my in my mind is uh, we fished a match in Germany. We were cod fishing on the drift. On the practice days, I found a method which was I was doing very very well on. The first day of the the main competition, I stuck to the method. Thought that it'd come on and it'd fish, and it didn't. <laughs> it cost me a lot, really. And turning that on its head. Have you ever tried some unfancied technique as a last resort, only to find you've hit the jackpot? We fished out from Cork Harbour over a piece of rough ground and the uh, locals were using short length of luminous tubing fishing for the congas and the conga, believe it or not, were, your, your lead was a perk and you'd have one short trace about 15 inches long, luminous tube I fished a 4.0 or 5.0 chunk of mackerel and then about 5 inches above the perk exactly the same but just bounced the uh, perk on the rock and the congas were just absolutely annihilating it it was just a method the Irish anglers had picked up when I seen the rig I thought this will never work and I thought I'll give it a go and I won the day with 30, 31 congas Looking back now over everything you've tried and achieved since taking up boat match fishing what is the single best memory that you will be taking away from it all? The best single memory was uh, fishing Minehead. And it was a really, really horrible day and we were kept in shore. And uh, I picked up a, a couple of packets of, of mussel earlier on in the day. at the local tackle shop. We were having a, a chat in the morning and he said to me, oh, if you're in shore, he said, you, you, you might pick another fish up on, on the mussel. So I fished there, uh, lug and mussel and crab and mussel baits and won both days. I had 11 cod the first day, there was only 14 cod on the boat and the second day was exactly the same, there was 19 cod on the boat and I had 11 fish, I had 22 fish. That's when I became European cod champion. I got off the boat that second day and I was about 10 foot higher really. Because of fishing against the anglers from my head, you know, we were just, they were so clued up on it, even second day Nobody went and bought muscle, you think they'd have, they'd have clocked on and, and switched over. But uh, that didn't happen and that, that was, that's a real good memory, I, I really enjoyed that. It was one of my highlights. And again, turning it on its head, what's the worst memory you've come away with? I think the worst memory was uh, not being picked in Ireland when I should have at least been in the team in the first place. And to go and prove myself on the practice days and find the method and even tie the uh, the rigs for the anglers and then one not be picked, two the anglers didn't stick to the method and uh, getting annihilated by the Italians I think really when we, we should have really been up there and that, I think that was probably my best chance ever of becoming world champion. And would you personally recommend international duties to other up and coming boat anglers who might in the future fancy the chances? Yes I would Phil. Obviously, it's everyone's dream to, to fish for England, but what I would think, I'd get Angus to think twice of the time Im implication and the money implication, the, the actual cost is uh, is phenomenal, really. So, you know, if this is going to put you under financial pressure, I'd ask him to step aside, just have a little think about it before they, they jump in feet first, really. As we said earlier, you're now out of all this. So what, for you, was the final deciding factor? And how hard was it to actually leave after all the hard work you put in to get there and later to maintain your position? 
The final store was we fished the home international in Arbroath, and it was the year Mick Duff had been picked for Scotland. We travelled down together. We went out and fished the first day. I won my boat, Mick won his boat, and we were blown off the second day. And basically, we went to the presentation. There was no respect. There was no. It was really a downer, really. The whole the whole competition was a bit of a farce, and it cost a lot of money for the practice and. I thought they were really need this anymore, and that was the time I thought, no, I'm going to step aside, and I stepped out, and that was the that was the last time I fished four years ago. So where and for what does ex England international Steve Quinn fish for these days? I love my species fishing, and I still go out and do a lot of species fishing on Goldilocks and, and Rillwood Quinn. I fish the Westport Festival every year. That's a full week, and the. the the competition side's still there. I say the Westport Festival, I fished it for 11 years and won it eight times. But I enjoy me fishing more now. I'm not on the hot plate anymore. I can I can go out, relax, still competition-minded. I still like to go down south and uh, have a go on a bream and things we don't get a great deal of in the north. And with having a little place in Spain, I still love going over and fishing over there. And Because the pressure's off, Phil, I tend to... Do that bit of fishing, and I really enjoy it now. Took a, took a lot of pressure off me, and I do enjoy the fishing. And are there perhaps still any burning ambitions as yet still unfulfilled? What I would like to do, Phil, I'd like to coach a junior team, which I'm going to really think about this year. That would be something else, because there's not that many up-and-coming boat anglers, really. There's a lot of anglers on the shore, young anglers, but I don't think they're given enough help. So I'm going to seriously look into that now I'm virtually semi-retired. I'm going to really try and give the sport something back this year and maybe try and get a, a group of anglers up and running, young anglers. Would that then be confined to the local scene or are you thinking of the bigger picture here? The field's wide open, really. I'll put the thing out and it doesn't matter where they're based. You know, I'm willing to travel and I'm, I'm willing to teach. I've had 20, 30 years of sport and I've really enjoyed it. I'd just like to give a little bit something back. Could that be a thing be incorporated into the England setup, perhaps? Well, I think it could, Phil, yeah. If they were willing to give me that chance and that bit of help, yeah, I'd certainly like to uh, see a, a junior... Well, certainly coach a, a junior boat fishing team. That would be something else, wouldn't it? And how, then, might you guide them so as not to make some of the mistakes that you possibly made? We all love catching fish, but I think at, at the end of the day as well, you've got to enjoy what you're doing. I think with me, it was go, 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 go. One, you've got to get enjoyment out of it. You can't push the kids too far, you can't push people too far. Slow and easy and just push them along. I think they'll come on. I don't think a heavy hand works. Is that an approach adopted already by our foreign competitors by any chance? The Italians and the Spanish are very keen on their junior anglers. A lot of them are sponsored by shops, tackle shops, big shops, big tackle companies like the Tubertini. So, yeah, they do push it a lot more abroad than we do in, in, this, in England, I'm afraid. And with the Italians being as good as they are, it obviously pays dividends. Well, it certainly does, because they're getting coached from the age of 10 and 12. What you'll find with the Italian anglers, they're all very young anglers, a lot younger than the, uh, the English, many other teams. And probably the average age is probably only 23, 25, because they've been nurtured from, from an early age. And I think that's what this country needs. And now, it's pleasure fishing. Now it's pleasure fishing, definitely Phil, yeah. Having been a pleasure angler for all of my fishing life, I personally think I made the right choice. There is a lot to be said for it. For me at least, the cost on all fronts of pursuing the England dream doesn't really balance the potential payback. 
but that's an individual thing, and certainly from the information you provided us with here, nobody hoping to follow that dream in the future should be under any degree of illusion as to what will be expected of them. My thanks then to Steve Quinn for being so frank in telling it as he sees it here. Thank you.